Please join me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And today we're going to talk about love. In just a moment, you're going to hear one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible and some of the most beautiful words ever written. In fact, listen now, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not insistent on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This passage is beautiful and famous for obvious reasons as we hear it. We know that we typically hear a passage like this at weddings. We typically read it a lot around Valentine's Day, and that's okay. But the context is very clearly the church. Understand, Paul did not just write a random love poem and drop it right here in the scriptures, disconnected from everything around it. There is a context to this great love chapter. The Corinthians, they needed to hear how to love. They were not operating with love in the congregation. It's in the context of spiritual gifts, chapter 12 and chapter 14, right in the middle of that discussion of spiritual gifts, Paul has to remind one of the churches, oh, you need to love. Love would surely resolve their core issues of pride in Corinth and self-centeredness and self-indulgence and their terrible divisions. And so understand this masterpiece on love is a passionate exhortation to one of the churches. This beautiful literature on love is a strong rebuke to a church. And so you and I are going to take this to heart ourselves. So the goal today is not for us merely to admire this amazing passage of Scripture. We, we do admire it, but that's not the point. That's not the point of any Scripture that we just go, wow, that's beautiful. Rather, we want to apply it. So we don't want to be merely hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word today in the realm of loving one another in the church. So when we think about love, we're going to see that it's not one of the nice-to-haves in a church. This is a must-have in the church. So as a church, we think about it, there are a lot of things that are nice to have. Among the things that we are so grateful that's nice to have are these buildings. I'm so grateful for them. It's, it makes life a lot easier that we have our own buildings. But you do know a church can be a church without buildings. For centuries, uh, there were no church 
buildings, and the believers did quite well and expanded quite rapidly. It's nice to have the buildings, but love, that's in a different category. This is essential. In fact, that's the first thing that Paul tells us here. The necessity of love. The necessity of love, that takes us back to verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I give up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So as we've seen, these Corinthians, they've been preoccupied with a lot of things. Their idea of sophistication, they loved great oratorical abilities, they loved worldly wisdom, and they loved impressive spiritual gifts. That's what we saw in chapter 12 and what we'll see in chapter 14. But Paul said at the end of chapter 12, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And this is that excellent way. That more excellent way is the way of love. So Paul here is not against spiritual gifts. Of course not. But he's against the way the Corinthians were misusing the spiritual gifts. So Paul's point in this passage is this, that spiritual gifts should be used in love. Without love, even impressive spiritual gifts are pointless. And Paul is very precise here with the words here. Notice he says in verse 1 that tongues without love is useless. So even if we have the gifts of tongues of some heavenly language, language of the angels perhaps, it's just noise if we don't have love. It's actually comical in the passage. He said, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So we just had an amazing time of musical worship here. Loved it. I always have to try to hold back a little bit because I've got to preach after that. And I've already been singing all morning. But, uh, and I'm making sure Sean's not in there right now. But uh, wouldn't it have been weird and unhelpful had everything stopped this morning and we had a cymbal solo? Yeah? <laughs> I could take about five seconds of a cymbal solo before I want some other instruments to come in. Or a gong solo. Somebody just boom, boom for, for a few minutes. We'd say, that's worthless. That's useless. That's just a bunch of racket. And that's what Paul says, that impressive gift of tongues that was operative there in the church at Corinth. He said, if you're not, if you're not doing that from a heart of love, you're just making a bunch of noise, not helping anyone. Same point when he comes to the gift of prophecy. Prophecy without love is useless. He's going to speak of the benefit of prophecy when we get to chapter 14 next week. But if you heard a man get up and proclaim the word of God but he did not do it from love, it would not be helpful to you. I have to rack my brain actually to go back. When was the last time I heard somebody preach without love in his heart, as best I could discern it? It's been a long time. I, I can't even put a face with the name, but I, I know in the past I've seen it before where somebody, I think that guy just liked to hear himself talk. A person can preach the word of God from a motive not loving God and loving others. It, it could be pride, just want people to hear how good I am. That could be a bad motive. Some people could preach just out of anger. Like I'm annoyed with everybody. I just, I have a pulpit now where I can just tear into people. Feels good to the flesh, I suppose, but that's not to be us. We're to be motivated by love. I heard about two pastors talking one time and one said, I love to preach. And the other asked, do you love the people to whom you preach? That has to be us. Love is essential. Paul also in verse 2 talks about knowledge. If I have all knowledge and don't have love, it's useless. 
Back in chapter 8, verse 1, do you remember this? We saw this verse. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It was in the context of some of the believers. They understood their liberties in Christ, but they didn't care about the weaker brothers. And Paul had to rebuke them there. Chapter 12, verse 8, we, we read about a, a gift called the utterance of knowledge. That's a, that's a great thing. But knowledge, if not expressed with love, is not at all beneficial. And so let's just think a moment. Why do we want to gain biblical knowledge? We should want to. We should be more eager than ever. Lord, I just want more and more of your word. But we have to ask the question, why do I want more of your word? Love needs to be the motivation. Lord, I want to know your word better. I want to spend more time in your word that I might know you better. That I might love you more than I presently do. This word's going to call me to love others. Lord, I want that to be true of me. I want to be more effective for you because I'm now gaining more knowledge of you. And Lord, it would be, if it would please you, I want to be more fruitful for you because of this knowledge of your word. Not knowledge for knowledge's sake. Love is the motive. Then we see here also in verse 2 that faith without love is useless. Notice that this is amazing faith he calls out here. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... If I have a stunning faith like that, but no love, it's going to be useless. Then he brings up giving in verse 3. Listen to this. This is astounding generosity. If I give away all I have, that's generous. When you're giving it all away, but he says, if you're not giving out of love, then it is also gaining you nothing. Do remember with me that God does expect our motive in our giving to be loved. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us giving out of that motive. Now, I think around here, that's what happens. But uh, I, I know that in other places, sometimes people are tripped up and they give out of other motives. Somebody might have the idea of, you know, I'm going to give a good offering to try to impress others. Can I tell you that would never work here? Because nobody knows what you give. Only Stacy, our financial secretary, will, will collect the offerings and somebody's with her counting. But then the record keeping is there kept on a computer that none of us see so that you get an end of the year statement. So you see where your giving went and you can use it for taxes if you wish, but nobody would know. So if you had as the goal, I'm going to give big offerings so people will think well of me. We have no idea. So nobody gives for that motive here. I've heard of people in other churches giving for control. Hey, if I'm one of the big givers, I'm going to have more sway. I'm going to have more say in the church. That would never work here because we have no idea how much you give. We know what the big number is, how, much we're, how we're doing financially as a church, but we don't know what you're giving. In fact, it would not work for you if somebody said, well, do you know how much I give? Let me tell you how much I give. I want more control. That would work against you. We think, well, that's sinful. That's fleshly. Why would you, why would you talk that way? Love has to be the motivation, even in our giving. Well, we also have here the, the idea of making great sacrifices would be useless without love. He says in verse 3, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So if we summarize this, what's Paul saying? Spiritual gifts are great. They're even wonderful, but not without love. You have a spiritual gift. You should be using it in the body of Christ. We saw that last time and we'll see it again next time. But the motivation behind all that has to be love for God and love for his people. Let's pause here for a moment. Isn't it a staggering thought 
that God knows your unspoken motives. Isn't that amazing? God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. And he knows your very motives. So it's not enough to do good things, but God wants to know, why are you doing the good things? You can negate the good thing you're doing with your, with your motives or not what he calls them to be. So God knows your unspoken motives. And listen, he cares about your unspoken motives. Our motives matter. It must be love. Now, some of you have been thinking about last week's message. I've heard you talk about it during the week, and I love that. And so last time we were in 1 Corinthians 12, that teaching where each person has at least one spiritual gift. And we talked last time about how you and I want to know what our spiritual gifts might be. And then we talked about how can you know what God's spiritual gift for you is. And so the only, only ways we know to do this is to pray, Lord, would you show me what my gift is to use in the body? And then to serve. Pray and begin serving. And it's in serving in the body, sometimes maybe in different ways, you'll begin to discover, I think I understand now how God has wired me and gifted me for his service. But I want to add to that this week. I want you, as you try to discern what your spiritual gift is, keep praying about it, keep serving, but also be loving. Be loving. You don't want to wait until you understand your gift and begin to serve to go, and then I'll be loving to the church. No, it's all going to be about love. It needs to be driven by love. In fact, this should be what's driving you to pray. Lord, I do love you and I want to serve you. I love these people in the body of Christ around me in this church. And so out of love, Lord, I want to serve them. Would you show me what my gift is as I serve you here? All out of love. We can say it this way. We're failing as servants of God if we're not serving with love, no matter what we do. Isn't the passage very clear? So years ago, when I was praying about a seminary to go to to train after college, I went to a seminary that had as its policy, you get no academic credit for your classes if you're not actively sharing the gospel. Can you imagine that? The school felt so strongly about this that no matter if you're making A's in your Greek classes, Hebrew classes, systematic theology, whatever, even if you're making A's in the classes, if you're not out sharing the gospel during the week, you'll get no academic credit. And so that was pretty, pretty serious. And so what did we do? We shared the gospel. We shared the, by the way, to share the gospel, to do evangelism without love is also useless. We must be motivated. But I, but I do love that mindset of the, of the seminary where I went, that they didn't want to have a bunch of guys graduating with their heads full of knowledge, but not living it out, not sharing the good news. So they wanted your heart warm while your head was growing in this great knowledge of God and his word. And so, by the way, they didn't require us to lead people to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Only God can save people. But they did want us out faithfully attempting these gospel conversations. And they had it this way. Basically, an average of one a week, you should have shared Christ with somebody. And we would kind of report on that as a way of accountability. And therefore, any A you had in class, you get to keep it because you have shared. So in other words, we're just saying this. You get no credit for serving the Lord if it's not driven by love. You say, but I've done all these things. God's looking at your motives. He's looking at your heart. We don't want to fail in a service by wrong motives. So let me ask you some questions now. What are you doing in your service to the Lord that is not motivated by love? Is there any service you're giving to Christ that is not, is not being driven by your love for God and your love for his people? It could be showing up at church today. You know, I just came because that's what I do. And I'm interacting without any love here. 
The, the goal is not then we'll stop coming until you love. No, go ahead right now and say, Lord, I want to recapture and rekindle my love for you and for your people. You know, it's possible, as we talked about, to give with no love. We want to rekindle that love. It's possible to teach in some ministry of the church, and, and it's no longer about love. Typically, we start off with the right motivation if we know Jesus. But it is very easy over time to lose that sense of why I do it. So it could be somebody serving. You did love the Lord, but over time and now it's just a good routine you have. It's Sunday. It's what I do on Sundays. And so here I go. There's no real love in it. Or we could shift into pride. It was genuine love, but now I see somehow it's become partly about me. And we want to forsake all that. That we come back to the purity of our motivations. Lord, I love you. And I love your people. I want to serve from that. So think with me. If you recapture this motivation of love, how do you think your service might be different? Certainly, if you're motivated by love, you're going to see a greater passion for your ministry and the life of the church. There should be greater excellence when you think, this is why I do it. I am in love with Jesus. I'm in love with his people. I'm going to serve out of love. There should be greater faithfulness when you serve out of love. And if God chooses, maybe even greater fruitfulness in your ministry because you're motivated by the right things. So what have we seen so far? We've seen the necessity of love. See with me next, the nature of love. The necessity of love, but now the nature of love. And that takes us to verse four again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So this passage not only tells us that love is essential, but this passage tells us what love is. And this is very helpful. There are many notions of what love is out in the world around us. We've grown up with these. And essentially, many people believe that love is a strong emotion, a strong emotion that comes upon you sometimes and a strong emotion that departs from you sometimes. It's an, it's an exciting feeling. That's how many people look at it. I don't think they really believe in Cupid, but it's almost like they do, that there's some arrow that hit me. Oh my goodness, I wasn't even expecting this, and now I'm in love. And just as mysteriously, what happened to me? I'm no longer in love. And people will make major life decisions based on whether or not they have this exciting feeling. Some people equate love with infatuation, like, I love how I feel when I'm around this person. Some people maybe define love as an attraction or a desire. Now, there's a place for that type of romantic love. God is the designer of that too. In fact, there are Greek words for that in the Bible. We have that word phileo for friendship love. The Greek language also had a word eros for romantic love. Again, that too of God. But here we have the word agape that you've probably heard before if you've been around church for a while. And this is a word that the biblical writers like Paul would use to speak of God's love. This is a love that's an active, godly, giving love. We see it in the heart of God and God wants it in us, his children. We're to be, we're to be living out this love. So Paul here is describing for us now what this love is and what it's not in the verses that we've just read. He's going to tell us how this type of love acts and how this type of love never acts. So let's look at it. What is love? He says, love is patient. Love is kind. And these refer to love's passive and active responses to other people. So on the one hand, if we genuinely have love, we're going to be patient with the people around us. 
If we genuinely have love, we're not going to be popping off and snapping at people. We're not going to write people off too quickly. We're going to be patient with the people that we love. And then, not only patient, on the other hand, we're going to be actively kind to people that we say that we love. So true love requires both being patient and acting in kindness. And by the way, this is the kind of love God has had for you. Think of it with me. How amazingly patient God has been with each of us. I've had a head start on you with this passage all week thinking on this. And so I've had a chance this week to think about just how amazing God's patience has been with me over my lifetime. It's amazing, isn't it? That, that he would wait on you coming to salvation. Now we know God was at work drawing you and all that, but I'm just saying God could have looked at us in our sinfulness and said, no patience with you, immediately into the condemnation that you deserve. But he was patient. He was patient. And even as believers, we have not been consistent always in our walk with him. And we've sinned even as believers. And hasn't he been patient? And he keeps working with us. Oh, but he's also been kind. Instead of giving us the judgment that we deserve, oh, he has lavished his grace and kindness upon us, adoption, a home in heaven with him, his spirit in us, a Bible for us, a church family like this. He has just been so kind and he continues to be kind to us. And God calls us to love like that in the body of Christ. So let me ask you, are you loving like that? Is your love, what you call love, is it patient and is it kind? Some people say, I just don't like people. I, I'm just annoyed by people. I'm patient with life circumstances, but I'm not patient with people. Can I tell you, if you're not very patient, you don't love very much. Because the definition of love here requires patience. Sometimes we can be so annoyed with people out in the culture. Sometimes people express it online about their frustration with other drivers. And they want to give everybody a public service announcement about how everybody ought to be driving on Staples Mill Road. Can I remind you, you've made mistakes on Staples Mill Road too. You just forgot. We can slip into some arrogance. You know, there are people who had to honk the horn on you when you were sitting at the light. We're all annoyed at that person until it's us. So we, we must remember I'm in need of a lot of patience. And if I love other people, yeah, we frustrate each other, but I, I must give patience and I must be active in kindness toward them. Listen, what, what love is, it's patient and kind. Now he gives us seven verbs of what love is not. And I understand that's a big number. We'll be fast here. But what love is not, and this is very personal to the Corinthians. Essentially, in these seven statements Paul's going to make now, he's basically telling the Corinthians, Corinthians, love is the opposite of how you've been acting in your church. Again, it's a beautiful passage, but this is written first to the Corinthians and then to us. He says this, what's love not, what does love not do? It does not envy. In other words, love is not jealous. Love does not have a competitive spirit with other people. Remember, the church at Corinth divided in so many ways, even at the very beginning. Some, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They were jealous of one another, divided, sometimes maybe even jealous about their different spiritual gifts. Now, what is jealousy? What is envy? It's the displeasure at another person's success. You ever had that feeling? I'm sure you have. Where you see somebody else being blessed in a way that you wanted to be blessed, and you feel a sense of, hmm, that bugs me that they're having it go so well. And when that, when that thought comes into you as, you, as you grow in Christ, you recognize, oh, that's a sinful impulse. Why do I have that? I should be able to be happy that somebody's being blessed in ways that maybe I would like here. You know, it can happen to pastors. You, you can hear about God blessing another congregation in some way that you want God to do. And you could go, oh, 
And, and, and you recognize, well, that's an awful thought. Why would I not want God to bless other of his churches? And so we, you repent of that. Do you want to know what the antidote is to jealousy like that? It's to pray for that other person that's being blessed. You pray for the other church that's being blessed. You, and you pray something like this. Hey, Lord, I'm sorry for that ugly thought that I had. Would you, would you instead of my ugly heart, would you heap your blessings on them even more? Would you, Lord, do amazing things there, even more than you're presently doing? That, that is a way of, of killing envy and jealousy in us. Well, we're told that love does not envy like, and love does not boast. It's not arrogant. And this was a particular problem in Corinth. They were all about exalting themselves. They wanted to show off. And Paul says, love doesn't do that. You and I also want to avoid any type of boasting in our lives. One of the places where we're tempted to do it in our generation is sometimes on social media. We, we think about something going on in our lives, and it's okay to share happy things. And if your motives are like, hey, I just want people to celebrate with me. Something amazing is happening. That is beautiful. But we should check our motives. Like, why am I posting this wonderful thing that happened? Am, am I wanting people to be impressed with me? Is this, is this somehow a boast? Sometimes we even do the humble brag. We, we will talk about what... We won't say that's a failure, but really it's impressive. You want everybody to say, no, no, it's, it's wonderful. We need to watch out for pride in ourselves. Well, love doesn't boast. Love also is not rude. One translation says, does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it doesn't act in a disgraceful, shaming way. And the Corinthians needed this as well. Remember the women in the church were shaming their husbands. They were, they were really transgressing their own husbands. And, and, and Paul saying, if you love, you wouldn't act that way in the church. Remember, we also saw the wealthy were disgracing the poor in the church there, even around the Lord's table. And Paul saying, that's rudeness. That's acting unbecomingly. Love would not allow you to do that. Then he says this, it does not insist on its own way. It doesn't seek its own preferences, and the Corinthians needed that. Then it says this, it's not irritable. In other words, it's not provoked. It's not easily angered. It really is related to that idea of patience. And then this one, nor is it resentful. One translation says, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Literally, in the Greek language, does not reckon the evil. One translation says, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So the idea for simplicity is this, real love doesn't hold grudges. And so that's an important word for us in a church. Here we are, all of us imperfect people, very likely that we're going to let each other down over the weeks and years together. And so we're going to need people who are quick to forgive one another, to let things go, to forgive it and move on together to the glory of God. No grudges, very important word for us. And then this, he says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We live in an age where there's a false love that tells us we must rejoice with wrongdoing. We're told that's what love is. If somebody's doing something that the Bible calls sinful, evil, we're supposed to, in the name of love, say, well, that's amazing. Well, you go. That's, that's wonderful. But the scripture says real love can't do that. So we are to speak the truth in love. We, we say around here as a church, we are rooted in the truth and we're reaching in love. We're not seeking to be hurtful, but we have to be wedded to the truth. So we're not people who have a love that's somehow at odds with truth. The two go together. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. 
One commentator said this in addition to that. He says, love absolutely rejects the most pernicious form of rejoicing over evil, gossiping about the misdeeds of others. That'd be another way of not being loving when you're rejoicing in the wrongdoing of another person. If that brings you a sense of glee, there's a person who failed, that makes me feel good by comparison. And I want to talk to other people about their failure over there. That would not be loving. We don't rejoice at wrongdoing. And then in verse 7, these, these summary statements, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What's Paul saying here? Well, Paul is not saying love is naive, but he is saying that love is full of hope, that love endures, that it lasts. And you and I are called to love like that in the body of Christ. We say, I fall short of that. Who does embody this love perfectly? Our Savior Jesus embodies this. In fact, people have done this through the ages, have said, you know, you could temporarily, just for a moment for the exercise, you could insert the name Jesus here, every place you see the word love here, and the name of Jesus fits here. For instance, you could say Jesus is patient and kind. You say, oh, he is, that fits. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. And you could go through this passage and say, that just fits, that fits, that fits. But one commentator said, you know, you could put your name in there and it doesn't fit so well. In fact, that's a beautiful thing to do. Right now, you could try it right where you're sitting. You could say, well, let me, let me try to throw my name in there and you'll discover, oh, that doesn't fit. You might see some progress. You might see the work of the Holy Spirit. You've been walking with Jesus a while. Think, you know, some of that now wasn't true of me before. It's starting to be that way, but you're going to hit some and you're going to go, ah, that, that's not me after all. <laughs> you might get to the part where it says, uh, Jim is not irritable or resentful. You might go, well, you know, I got some work to do here. So you, you walk through that. So the, the beauty of an exercise like that is it keeps us from just admiring the beauty of the passage abstractly to go, wait a second, I want to apply this. I've got some room for growth here. I want to love like the Lord. So we've been seeing together the necessity of love. We've been looking at the nature of love. And now real quickly, the permanence of love. That's verse eight again. And I won't reread all these verses for the sake of time, but he makes the point here that these spiritual gifts, they are temporary. They are good, but they're temporary just for this age. He talks about prophecies ceasing and tongues ceasing. Really, all of these spiritual gifts, there's going to come a time when they cease. We ask, well, when is that going to happen? And that's when we go to heaven. That's when we're in the presence of the Lord. Then the role of spiritual gifts will have ended then for sure. So Paul's point here in verses 9 and 10 is something better than spiritual gifts is coming. Jesus is coming. These Corinthians were so excited about the spiritual gifts and dividing themselves among them, they were getting distracted. Paul's just reminding them, look, these are great gifts. You need to exercise the gift according to love, but don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Something better than spiritual gifts you have, and it's Christ himself and what's coming. We also see in verse 11, these spiritual gifts will be outgrown. He talks about here, I used to think like a child, reason like a child, but then I'm going to be mature. I've put these ways behind. He's making the point that right now we need those. But no matter what your spiritual gift, you're not fully mature yet. Full maturity is coming in the presence of the Lord. That's when you'll be fully known and you'll know as you ought to know. And then verse 12, he makes the point that spiritual gifts will be surpassed. Again, we see in a mirror dimly now. Then in the presence of the Lord, we'll see face to face. Right now we know in part, no matter how gifted, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The point, gifts are good but they are temporary. 
The gifts are wonderful, but they must be exercised with love for Christ and love for his body. You and I are to stay humble, stay expectant. We're to keep loving and keep serving. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So the question comes to us then, how can I love like this? I want to love like this, but how can a mere human being like me love like God loves? Well, first of all, you need to receive the love of God. You can't love like this until you've experienced love like this, and you can by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You might be here today, and you've been on the run from God. Now, he's done something amazing to get you in the room this morning or watching a live stream right now for you to hear a message of how much he loves you. But let, let me remind you, God has loved you all along. Even when you were not loving him, you were actually living as, as an enemy of his. He kept loving you. He's been pursuing you like he did for all of us. It was God's idea to send a savior to rescue you out of all of your sin. And so today you can experience this amazing love of God if you'll stop running from him and turn to him and say, I, I want your love now. I've been wrong. You need to tell him that I've been wrong. I've been trusting in all the wrong things. I've been running away from you. But today I stop. I turn to you, Jesus. I recognize you died for me on the cross. You were raised from the dead. And now, just like you said, I'm believing in you. The scripture says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what God wants to do for you. Save you, reconcile you, <clears throat> make you one of his children now and forever. So to love like this, receive the love of God by trusting in Jesus today. But then believer, now you want to walk with Jesus. The Bible talks about that in Ephesians 5 of being filled with the Spirit. When you're fully following Jesus as your Lord, the other name for that is being filled with the Spirit. And Galatians 5 says if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, you will then have on display in your life the fruit of the Spirit. And notice how that fruit begins. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Today, put your faith in Jesus, and if you already have, now follow Jesus. May he produce his fruit in each of us. Let's pray together. Lord, we've been awed by the beauty of this passage, but more than that, we've been challenged by the call to love in this passage. And Lord, we ask you to make this true of us individually and make it true of us as a church family. We thank you, God, for the love we already experienced. But Lord, we see room for growth here. And we want this love to really impact more and more people. We pray that we'll impact this community with your truth, the gospel, and with this love. And when people come here, Lord, may, may they find your love unshakable. So help us, Lord, to express this love well. Forgive us, Lord, for how we've fallen short. Thank you that you offer that forgiveness. And Lord, we... We are intentional again to pursue being this type of people to each other and to the world around us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.